0: Thanks, Mary. Great. So, beginning of the Roman series, and um, kind of it comes to me just to, to do a little bit of an introduction, um, uh, sort of to set the tone for kind of the, the, the following talks. And we've got some great guest speakers coming in. Um, I'm looking forward to Peter next week, who's kind of a real classic Bible teacher. Years and wonderful Bible heritage and background coming from kind of Brethren Church and through all sorts of other churches. Real kind of teacher of the word, lover of the word. He's going to be speaking next week. And then uh, my friend um, Bishop John from up, up the Hill, whose kind of church experience is kind of really rich in, in kind of ending up being a bishop, but experiencing what it is for um, Uh, for the church to experience the kind of renewal of the Holy Spirit um, through those years. And he's going to talk about some of the early experiences in the Church of England. Uh, I'm going to get him to share a little bit about his story as well. Kind of the power of the word and the spirit together. And then it's great with people like Paul from Whitcomb Baptist as well. It's great. So really looking forward to it. But a little bit of introduction on Romans. Romans is a book probably many of you have read or dipped in and out of. It's kind of got some real meat in there, which is kind of why we were keen to kind of try and go through a little bit. I mean, you you could do a whole year's series on Romans, almost a verse at a time. Um, But we picked a few bits, um, kind of as we felt God leading us, and we're going to kind of go through those. In many ways, the book of of Romans is um, seen by many Christians as perhaps the most profound book in existence. I know Mary and Andrew love this book. They're always going on about it. And when I said I was thinking of doing a series in Romans... Mary almost did backflips in the church office while she was trying to do the admin. It was quite exciting. Um, Certainly, um, it's one of the most valued parts of scriptures in terms of teaching and theology for church. Um, It's it's been referred to in the past as the cathedral of Christian faith. Romans, in many ways, is placed as kind of Paul's primary, most um, important letter in the New Testament, not just because it's the longest work, which it is, but because in many ways it's the basis of all his theological, um, all of his writings It's almost summed up in, in Romans. And you get a flavour of uh, his ideas that kind of underpin everything that he's saying theologically and in terms of his basis for life. So it's a really important letter for Paul, probably the most important to the church. Uh, so he's writing to the church in Rome, around about AD 60, that's the kind of approximate time. And it's interesting, that the congregation in Rome must have been there for quite a while already when he's writing to them. In chapter 15, verse 23, Paul writes that he desired to visit them these many years. So clearly the church in Rome has been quite well established. Um, and he's kind of encouraging them to, and I'm wanting to use the church in Rome as a kind of bridge out into the missionary world to take the gospel out even further. They're not recent converts. Um, and um, he's not writing them to them to challenge them and rebuke them as many of the other theological letters he writes where there's a problem that he writes to address or a challenge or some kind of, um, sort of dodgy teaching in the church. It's not that sort of tone of letter. He's discipling them. It's almost like a father writing to his children to encourage them onto the next steps to... There's a warmth in his letter to them. He clearly loves them. He's clearly very p- proud of the church in Rome. Um, they seem to be well-organized, well-grounded. He says in chapter 15, verse 14, that they're filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. So these are a wise, mature bunch of Christians that are growing in the church in Rome. Clearly, as he says, you know, becoming to be known all over the world, a kind of real shining beacon of what the church should be. But of course, there's always more. God wants to do more. God wants to encourage you more. God wants to grow you more. Um, There was a large Jewish element to the church there, but it was also filled with lots of Gentile converts from paganism, slaves, free. It's a real mixture of people. It's great that a church made of a whole different kind of demographic. And how it started, no one's quite sure. The Catholic Church theologically argues that Peter established the church there, that he founded it. Um, Another view is that the kind of um, Roman Christians after Pentecost kind of went out and um, they grew the church um, from Jerusalem. They made their way there and they kind of planted the church. But it may be that actually, um, and we'll we'll never know, but it may well be that actually there were simply Christian families who lived in that city of Rome um, from kind of other Pauline churches where Paul had kind of shared the gospel and churches had been planted in the east, and that they'd actually settled in Rome as many people went to Rome for work, for jobs, because it was such a big place, and simply that those Christian communities began to grow together and began to enlarge as they reached out, as they simply shared their faith. In some ways, that's perhaps one of the most argued views, that it was just simply house churches that became communities and grew and grew and grew into big congregations. And so it was the fellowship of believers in the city rather than individual churches it was the Christians there together. Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered um, about the order of Paul's letters because of course we have Acts, Romans and then the rest but actually um, for those of you that are interested in such thing there's difference in opinion on it but generally it's considered that the kind of order the chronological order that Paul wrote his letters are as follows first and second Thessalonians then Galatians then 1 and 2 Corinthians, then Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, then 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. We've got to remember these are letters that Paul's writing. Writing letters to real people, to real churches, to real lives. People like you and me who are struggling, who are challenged, who are lost, who are confused, who are arguing, or who are just really hungry to grow. And Paul as a father... Kind of almost. The spiritual father is is, is urging them to step into more. I guess that's any church leader's. I hope that's what church leaders' desires are that we want the church to grow. We want one another to be inspired and to grow. And you feel Paul's warmth and his love for the church here. But particularly tonight, um, I just want to speak on two verses, verse 16 and 17. Of the chapter comes right at the end here, which in some sense are a concise summary of the whole of Romans. And some would say they're basically a summary of everything that Paul taught, his kind of theology of a whole. So, what are verse 16 and 17? It's just simply this For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then also the Greeks. For righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. That first bit again, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Um, I don't know if any of you here are any keen keen fishermen. Any fishermen here? Yes? No? 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 No, I've, done, I've been fishing a few times. I, I, I kind of get the idea of it that you can sit in a nice place by a quiet river, or you know, and it's kind of relaxing, and then you traumatize these fish by hooking them and pulling them out. I get, I get all that. And I've done fishing a few times. I've shared before here, very unsuccessfully. Um, I'm not particularly good at it, and often get very frustrated. There's different ways of fishing, though, aren't there? You know, with the lure and the catch and the kind of the weights and all that sort of stuff, or fly fishing. Well, there were two guys who decided to go fishing um, one, an older guy, one, kind of a younger guy. And they're both sitting in the boat. And um, the young guy is there, kind of trying to feed the wire through the bait and uh, through a hook and getting the weights on it and then getting the kind of floats on it. And they're trying to thread it onto this worm. And, and the old guy just reaches into his bag, picks out some dynamite, lights it slings it into the river. And up come all these dead fish. And the younger guy says, what are you doing? You can't do that. That's illegal. You can't fish like that. Um, At which point, the old guy lights the dynamite, gives it to the young guy, and says, what are you going to do? Fish or talk? At that point, I guess, he chucks the dynamite. Now, why do I tell you that story? That is uh, illegal, and you can fish like that, but it's not a very good idea. But dynamite is really dangerous and highly explosive. You can fish with a fishing rod, or you can fish with dynamite. Dynamite will change both your attitude and your altitude if you set it off anywhere near you. Certainly when you're fishing, it will do that. But the interesting thing about dynamite, and why I'm talking about dynamite, is that when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation, he uses the word power, dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. It's our word dynamite. It says the gospel is God's dynamite for, for, for salvation. It's, it's power, not just powerful, but full of power. It in itself is incredibly incredibly powerful. It's, it's something which houses mighty, explosive power. You look at a stick of dynamite. I've seen a stick of dynamite, and it looks like this kind of inert thing doesn't pose much of a threat. If you didn't know what it was, you would look at it and think, well, what's that? But you light it and you find out. It houses mighty, explosive power. Power to shake things up, power to move mountains, power to bring transformation. And it's the very reason that Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection, just before his ascension back into heaven, what does he say to them? Acts 1, you will receive power. Same word, dunamis, dynamite. You'll receive dynamite when the Holy Spirit comes on you. What for? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the gift they were told to wait for. They were told to wait for this dynamite, explosive, powerful gift that God wanted to give them. That they would become dynamite fishermen. And so can we. Maybe. <laughs> You're sitting there thinking, really? Really? I want to show you a video. Um, I saw this today and it just kind of, I don't know, I just want to play it to you. Do any of you know the, um, the, the, the um, magicians on telly, Pe- Penn and Teller? You know those guys? I mean they're pretty freaky. If you're a bit squeamish you might not want to watch their stuff because their stuff involves kind of crazy, you know, crazy things <laughs> um, and kind of, you can't quite work out what it's all about. Well, the guy at Penn, Penn Gillette I think is his name, he's an interesting chap, he's the one with the long hair, and um, he's he's kind of an avowed atheist, and he's quite explicit in his uh, hatred of religion, he sees religion uh, as um, a pretty destructive thing, in many ways he and I would agree on that, so he's kind of very much uh, an atheist and quite happy to talk about that, in many ways in fact he's often quite mocking of Christianity, mocking of the Bible. But I want to show you a really interesting video that I saw today, thinking in the context of us not being ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Am I ashamed of the gospel? If we know it's the power of salvation from God, then yeah, we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to play this video, hopefully it'll work. Isn't that really, really interesting? I just find that really interesting. You know, he's an atheist, but it's quite striking what he says. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? <laughs> I find it fascinating that an atheist would say that. To him, it doesn't make sense. If you're a Christian and you really believe this stuff is true, then why wouldn't you tell people that? That's kind of what Paul is saying in Romans. Hey, this stuff is true, church. And it's the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation, the gospel, not anything else. And I think we all believe that here. Um, and when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I think the sad thing is for many of us in the West, we are a bit ashamed of the gospel. Or maybe we're ashamed of church or we're ashamed of Christians. Uh, quite obviously from what he was saying there, he was really impressed that this guy seemed really kind of genuine and authentic and loving. And he used the word sane quite a lot, didn't he? (laughs) Which by implication would probably mean that he met quite a lot of Christians who perhaps he would consider not sane. We might share that. We might even be some of those people. But I just found it really, really interesting and quite provoking, his comments. How much do you have to hate somebody? to believe everlasting life is possible, and not tell them that. It's quite an indictment, perhaps, on the church, on the West. Maybe, you know, I, in many ways, I feel convicted in my own life. When have I not taken those opportunities? And in this case, they gave, he gave him a Bible. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's interesting here is that every single one of us has a story. We've all got a story, one that matters. If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus personally, you've got a story. And your story matters and your story is beautiful and your story is one that people need to hear. You know, we might not all think that we're um, Billy, Billy Graham preachers, and that's probably true. Very few of us in the room probably are evangelists. Actually, it's usually a small percentage of people who are evangelists, but we're all called to be witnesses. We're all called to be witnesses to what we've seen, to give witness to the goodness of God, the power of God, the reality of his presence and his love, the things that he's done in our lives. And we've got an important message that we're called to. That's what Paul's saying in Romans. It's a message of love. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of new life and hope. Now you might be, maybe your story started a long time ago. Maybe you've been a Christian a long, long long time. Maybe you were too small to remember quite when it did begin. Um, But Jesus has shaped you through the years, through, through teaching, through church, through fellowship, through reading the Bible. You've become the person you are because of his grace, because of his work in your life. Perhaps the way you conduct business, the way you're a mum or a dad, the way you have a family, the way you're a friend, the way you live your life. Your character has been shaped by your faith and by Jesus and by his spirit working in you. Or maybe you've just become a Christian recently. You're just beginning on that journey. You know, and For you, that radical transformation. We had the Alpha Course yesterday and we prayed for some people who kind of wanted to give their life to Jesus, who wanted to follow God. And for many of us here, maybe there's some of you here that it's a recent Transformation, a radical transformation. You're on the beginning of a journey. And all of those stories are really important. All of those stories have power in themselves because they're testimony of God's goodness. I know there are people in this church who can talk about how their faith in Jesus has brought transformation to their marriage. I know there are people in this church who would talk of years of addiction and shame and brokenness in their lives, but how Jesus has broken the power of addiction and brought freedom and taught them about forgiveness and new beginnings. And instead of shamed, better walk with their head held high, because they know they're a loved child of God, a friend of God. It's a a story of a new beginning. So we've all got this message, we've all got this story, and one that needs to be made known. Remember, Paul's not been to the church in Rome yet, but he's, he's wanting to write about the things that he wants to say to them. I think when he wrote the book of Romans, he wasn't intending on kind of creating a sort of major doctrinal book that will be used up and down churches for teaching. He wanted to just speak to them and he wanted to share his story and encourage them to share their story. And how does he begin, verse 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. We had this story of Saul on the road to Damascus. Out to hunt down Christians. We had that read, didn't we? And Jesus meets him on that road, blinds him. And, and, and see, Saul, as he was then, Paul, thought he could see, thought he knew everything, thought he knew the way. He, he thought he was honoring God. He was a radical, um, crazy guy, you know, and he was hunting Christians. And Jesus met with him, transformed him. And actually, he becomes blind in that encounter with Jesus, almost to show the real reality of his actual spiritual blindness before God gives him sight. And so he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what I needed, says Paul. I was blind. I thought I could see, but I was blind. And so I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel because it's brought transformation to my life. Look at who I used to be and look at who I've become. I mean, poor Ananias, who's told to go and pray for Saul, he got a really tough gig. I mean, sometimes I'm in prayer meetings. I remember one night at Woody's when I was leading a prayer ministry healing evening. And, you know, we had loads of ministry times and, and I'm praying, hoping that people are going to come forward with maybe a headache or a slight inner ear problem. And the first guy who walks up to me has got both legs in plaster and one arm out on a crutch. And the other one, and he's got back. <laughs> he's uh. It's amazing how at that point, ministry team people will look away, look anywhere to try and not be the one that this person comes to. And, and for Ananias, you know, he, he's there, faithful man of God, and God says to him, I want you to go and pray with Saul, at which point he probably spat out his coffee and went, Who? Saul? He's killing Christians. And God says, I want you to go and pray with this man. And he was faithful and went, <laughs> okay. And he's obedient and he goes to Saul and he prays for Saul. And there's that incredible moment where as Ananias prays for Saul who's blind. Scales fall off his eyes and he sees again. I've said it before, but I love the detail in the Bible. See, Saul thought he was going the right way, wasn't he? He thought he could see and he was going the right, right way in his life. But in order for him to truly see properly, God had to make him blind and had to set him straight. And where did he send him to go and pray for Ananias? We're told it's on Straight Street in the Bible. You can still go to Straight Street now. I love the fact that to set this man straight, he sends him to Straight Street and then helps him to truly see. It's a beautiful story of transformation. So Saul knows what it is to have a transformed life, to suddenly be able to see truth for what it was. And so he wants to share his story. I was ashamed of my life in many ways, but God's turned me around and now I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know personally that it's the power of God for salvation to bring total transformation. I was the worst of the worst. I killed people. I was there when Stephen was stones, says Saul. But now I'm a life transformed. So in these two short verses, Paul offers a summary of everything that he would say in the following 433 verses in the rest of Romans. And they're not just words about his story, but there are three truths that I'm going to very briefly share. First of all, Paul speaks about the supremacy of the gospel. So he says, look, there's there's nothing that compares to the gospel. And when we say the gospel, what do we mean? Well, gospel means good news. So the good news that you and I believe, many of us here, about Jesus, the good news of the cross, the good news of Jesus carrying the sins of the world, the good news and the power of the cross... There's no equal to it. You know, one of the things that often on an Alpha course you get people saying, yeah, but all religions lead to God, don't they? You know, and, and Christianity is just a, just a crutch. Actually, no. We as Christians don't believe that all religions lead to God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is unique and supreme. That's not a very politically correct thing to say right now. But I believe it's true. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. See, society or the media or all sorts of things would love to dumb us down and say, well, Christianity is quite nice. It makes you quite nice people. But don't you dare say that it's the only way to know God. Well, Jesus said it first. If you want to know the Father, it's through me. I, I am the way, the truth and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe that doesn't sound like comfortable listening, perhaps particularly for us who have been Christians for quite a long time, we kind of forget the radicalness of the gospel and we get a bit embarrassed about it. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's supreme good news. And it's not for the first time that Christianity might be mocked by intellectuals or by other people in society. That's always been the truth. It would have been in the days of Paul. It would have been mocked by the intellectuals. And there's often challenges that come to us through culture. Maybe through religious dogma. Interesting for Paul, his world wasn't anti-religion. Actually, there were all sorts of religions. There were loads of religions. And they kind of sort of existed in some sort of weird harmony and kind of got blended together. To the contrary, there were loads of religions in there. And so in a sense, people thought, oh, Christianity is just another one. Do we need another one? Oh, well, as long as it doesn't interfere with politics, as long as you don't say anything too outrageous. But of course, Christianity can't quite exist in that sort of way. And in Athens and in that whole area there, there was philosophy and intellect and cultural refinement. People were real thinkers and they loved arguing and debating and talking. And to them, the whole premise of the gospel was flawed. You know, they didn't see that you needed a saviour to save you. Actually, you had intellect that could save you. You had humanist thinking. Well, that's kind of coming back quite strongly at us again, isn't it, today? Humanism. You don't need a saviour. You need to just look into yourself. You need to believe in yourself. You need to push yourself. Everything you need is within yourself. You don't need someone outside of you. So that kind of world had Socrates and Plato as their guides. They didn't need Jesus to tell them to follow him. And of course, in Rome, there was so much power and so much wealth and so much materialism and money. And kind of for many of those guys, they would have been scoffing at the notion that some lowly carpenter from some back end water could save the world when he quite clearly couldn't even save himself from the power of Rome because he was crucified on a cross. So there's lots of scoffing about these, you know, people who are becoming Christians. I mean, some of them are even slaves. They're not educated. Look at them. They can't hold arguments together. They're not really thought through. And some of them are poor. In fact, lots of them are poor. There's all this scoffing of Christianity going on. And there still is today. And sometimes because of that, we feel ashamed and our gospel in our mind becomes weakened and we feel our voice is reedy and weak because actually I'm not very intelligent and actually people around me seem to be a lot brighter than me. And Christianity just seems like a... And we forget, actually, that the gospel has the power of salvation. It's unique. It's supreme. The gospel is superior to man's righteousness, man's effort. Religion is never going to get anyone to heaven. We're all like unclean things, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. Man's understanding, man's kind of intellect, is not enough. And wealth, you can't buy your way into heaven. And Paul says, with all these things around, I want you to understand the supremacy of the gospel. And also, secondly, he wants to talk about the sufficiency of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. The gospel is sufficient. It is what you need It is what we need. There's no obstacle too great for it to overcome, regardless of your experience or your education or your race or your nationality, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're male or female, young or old. It's irrelevant because the gospel is everything. It's sufficient for everyone, whatever your background, whatever your creed, whatever your past life makes no difference the gospel is sufficient and it's sufficient to change hearts minds and wills to change us from the inside out see religion will try and change you from the outside in try and make you conform to a certain pattern it will try to kind of force you into a framework or a shape where you'll get enough religiosity around you to look holy but actually the gospel says that's all just rubbish any effort you do this is what paul's saying any striving you do trying to add to the gospel is nonsense. Because the gospel is everything you need. The good news of Jesus Christ is everything you need and everything you could ever need. Because it's about changing you from the inside out. Changing your heart. Changing your mind. Changing your very will so that you can live in a different way. And it's not just a nice sentiment. Right back as I said at the beginning. It's dynamite. Dunamis. So many of us here, maybe we've got things in our lives that we really struggle to shift. Maybe it's addictive habits. Maybe it's patterns of thinking, patterns of life. Well, The good news of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit comes with power, dynamite power, to bring breakthrough in those areas, to change us from the inside out. The gospel is not about reformation. It's about transformation. And sometimes we as Christians, we want to kind of be reformed. We also want to change a bit. Actually, God says, no, I want to make you a new being. That's what becoming a Christian is all about. He doesn't make us better. He makes us new. And if you're a Christian here, then you're new. You're a new creation. The old has gone, new has come. That's really good news for people in the world who are really struggling. We need to not be ashamed about that. Christianity isn't about making nicer people. It's about making new creations. It's a beautiful, beautiful image of transformation. Before encountering the power of the gospel, I lived for myself. And now I desire to live for Jesus. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what Paul is saying. I don't think any other religion, philosophy, or ideal is sufficient to change the heart, mind, and will of people. But the gospel is, because it's sufficient. So we've had the supremacy of the gospel. There's nothing like it. We've had the sufficiency of the gospel. It's able to do everything that God wants to do to bring total transformation. And the final thing is this that Paul talks about, really. It's the simplicity of the gospel. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. There's lots of difficult things in the world to try and understand. Um, Ellie is doing her GCSEs this year and every now and then she shows me the maths homework that she's doing as though I would ever be able to understand some of it and I look with fear and and I get flashbacks to my childhood where maths was always something that used to fill me with a bit of horror but I look at what she's doing and it might as well be in Chinese if I'm honest I look at now the, the maths that Joe is doing as a nine year old and it scares me because I fear that he's going to ask me to help him. (laughs) And Joey thinks, I'm amazing. I don't want to shatter his... I'm like, "Uh, uh, talk to mum, talk to mum. I'm just doing this a second. (laughs) It's terrifying. There's lots of things in the world that I don't understand. There's lots of things in the world that I'm not really good at, I'm not really bright about. But the incredible thing about the gospel is... It's so simple, actually. If we, now, the truth is, we make it really complicated. We add to it, and we think we try and jump through hoops. But actually, it's really, really, really simple. The Lord saw fit to keep the gospel simple so that even a child can understand it. And actually, maybe child, children find it easier to understand because they don't overcomplicate it. The truth is, man has a way of often making important things extra confused. If you ask a religious person how to be saved, they'll tell you which rules to follow, what efforts to make, what pilgrimages you should attend and how you should do them, how many candles you should light, how many prayers you should recite, the ways that you should do it. And sadly often, religion ends up taking people's money and leaving them with a list of rules to keep. That's not what Jesus intended. Religion confuses things. If you ask religious people how to be saved, you'll probably get ten different answers. Philosophy confuses things in many ways. Philosophy says look for, look for the answers yourself. Look within yourself for answers. And get all you can while you can. Because in the end, life doesn't really have much real purpose or plan beyond yourself. It's all about you. It's empty and hopeless humanism. And while science might teach a man, a person, how, it can never answer really the fundamental question of why. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, brings life and fullness and is made so simple that a child can understand it. And what is it? What is the good news? And what is the gospel? Well, it's this I'm a sinner. There's brokenness in my life. It doesn't matter how likeable I am, how funny I am, how popular I am, or how good I try to be. You know, The amount of effort that I try to be really nice. doesn't matter whether I pay all my bills on time, whether I live at peace with my neighbor. If I'm a good family man, a good dad, I try my best to be a good husband. It doesn't make a difference because I'm still broken spiritually inside. There's still a fragmentation of my soul because I'm not connected to my maker. And because of the sin, we don't like that word, do we? Because of the brokenness and pain and sin, the wrong choices in my life, then I'm separated from my maker. I'm under a kind of judgment. And if I die, not having been put back together, not being reconnected to my maker, then I'm lost. Because I'm never going to know the love and friendship of my creator, my father, my God. That's the pain of humanity. That's what Romans is all about. But the good news is, as Paul says, that God loved me so much that he couldn't leave me in that state. But he provided a way for me to escape judgment. He sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect, glorious, wonderful life. Never sinned in anything he ever thought, did, said, But he was willing to go to a cross and die on a cross, taking all of my sin, all of our sin, all of the world's sin on himself to pay for those sins. And God, Paul says, raises him from death, triumphant, over sin and death. And the gospel, put simply then, is if you put your faith in Christ alone, in him alone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved pretty simple. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can't get there by my own efforts. My efforts will never be enough. In fact, it's almost trying to make up for something. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. My righteousness is not enough. So God provides a righteousness for me that's only received by faith. And then you become a child of God. John 1, 12 and 13. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Romans 10, 9 to 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not that complicated, is it? If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And that is the gospel. There's a a church in Rome, St. John, the Church of St. John. And it's got this famous staircase called the um, Scala Santa, holy stairs. And it's believed that um, they're the steps that Jesus walked when he left the judgment hall um, from um, Pilate on his way to Calvary. And people believe that if you crawl up those stairs, kind of on your knees, hands and knees, praying, that God will somehow hear your prayers and it's more effective and, and, and can encounter God that way. Over 400 years ago, Martin Luther Was doing that very thing. He was climbing these stairs on his hands and knees, begging God to forgive him of his sins. His knees are bleeding, his hands are bleeding, he's been crawling for such a long while. He wanted to be right with God. And while he was doing that, the Spirit of God brought that passage to mind. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek, for the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous by faith will live. And for him, that was a defining moment as he realized that actually you can't earn God's favor and love. It's given to you because God loves you. That's the power of the gospel. It's a free gift to us all. And it's a free gift to Pen and Teller, <laughs> whether they know it or want it, because it's a gift. It has to be received. There's something about that video when I watch it. Just, You get a glimpse, a chink in him. You just, There's something in him, isn't there? This guy's given him this gift with love. It's really interesting. He says, doesn't he, the guy looked me in the eyes. That to me says something about a confidence. We do that when we're confident. I wonder whether sometimes when we're sharing our faith, where are our eyes? Are they on the floor? Because often we feel embarrassed. I get that. I do. Often maybe we feel ashamed of our own inadequacy. And we often are inadequate. We're often rubbish. I'm rubbish at sharing my faith at times. I I stumble over my words and I think, I'm a a full-time paid Christian. I should be a lot better at than this. I've been to theology college. I've got a degree to show. I know the answers. You know, But in those moments, that all goes, doesn't it? So maybe we do feel shame. Maybe we do feel weak. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know it is the power of God for salvation. This guy who looked this chap pen in the eyes and gave him this Bible, just with a hope that maybe he would be touched, maybe that God's spirit would touch him. Because actually it's a work of God's spirit. It's not our arguments, is it? We don't win people into the kingdom by our arguments. They come in by the power of God's spirit. So maybe this week we could be more bold in sharing our faith. Maybe it will be giving a Bible to someone. Maybe it's just looking someone in the eyes and sharing God's love with them, honouring them, affirming them, not being intimidated by them because they're an atheist, but actually, he uses the word proselytising, sharing your faith, sharing your faith in really real gentle ways, sharing your story, your story of salvation, your story of how God has met with you. Because all of our messages of truth, of our story, have real power. Because they're stories of the power of salvation through Jesus Christ. The gospel is supreme. There's nothing like it. It's sufficient. It's everything that anyone could ever need for breakthrough. And it's actually really simple. It's all about Jesus and his love and the message, the power of the cross. So how are we going to respond to that? What are we going to do? Well, maybe, maybe you're here tonight. And you've not ever really received the gospel for yourself. Maybe God wants to meet with you, as he did for some people on Alpha yesterday. Maybe you need to believe the gospel to believe Jesus, the good news. And the great thing is you don't have to understand it all and know everything. It's just, well, if you want to follow Jesus and you call out to him, he will meet with you. Or maybe you do believe the gospel and you've kind of given your life following God, but actually maybe God's encouraging you to be someone who's more moved to share it, that God wants to encourage us to share our story this week. And what I'd encourage you to do is pray for an opportunity. But pray knowing that God will take you seriously and probably give you an opportunity. It's then up to you what to do with it. I'd like to pray that for all of us, including myself. God, would you give me an opportunity to share the gospel this week, the good news, gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to someone who needs to hear it. Maybe they're not expecting to hear it, like this guy, Penn. But perhaps, in that moment, the Holy Spirit opens a door into someone's life. You know, the truth is that someone once said, in lots of studies, I don't know who does these kind of studies, so, <laughs> but said that often the gospel has to be shared with people 15 times before they come to Christ. Whenever I'm sharing the gospel, in my mind, I'm always thinking, I know I'm going to be the first. (laughs) It's going to be really hard. (laughs) I'm going to be the first, and they're going to think you're such an idiot. Actually, the truth is, maybe this week we're going to share with someone and you're going to be number 15. And as you share it, suddenly the penny drops and they go, yeah, I need that, I want that. The truth is, of course, you might be the first, but sometimes once is enough when God's spirit's all over it. So I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite the band to come and join us. Sarah's going to come and share something.
1: I've just really got this... Anyway. Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord provides for those who grieve in Zion. And I really felt the Holy Spirit wanting to give us a crown of beauty instead of ashes. There's something about um, when people wear a crown, instead of despair and mourning and um, just the inability to praise and the lack of joy, and their heads are down, when people wear a crown, there's something about that posture, that confidence... But also, when he's done that in us, it gives us something to do and say for others. Does that make sense? I just really sense him saying, it's really time to pray. And if we can't speak it, just by actually, if we have that compassion in the moment, just for goodness sake, don't ignore it if there's somebody around that you know doesn't know him, because actually that's the spirit of God prompting you. That's the the same difference, if you like. And it's important that we go with that, and we come alongside and we just pray, and we say, do you mind if I pray for you? Because when we're actually owning the name of Jesus and praying, and they're saying amen, there's a massive transition that's going on in that moment. Does that make sense? Um, And I felt him saying, you know, if you're grieving... I felt in wanting to minister to people who are either grieving about their own sin, um, grieving for stronger times that they've had, grieving for stuff that they've lost or people that they've lost in some context. I don't know whether it's death or um, just uh, relational. But that he has chosen you to shame the strong to confound them, to perplex them, and to humble them. And so in having ministry and having an exchange go on now, and to meet and have an encounter with his spirit, it will empower you to wear your crown instead of the ashes.